0: Equity Leadership Now hosts conversations with equity conscious leaders from pre K through university settings who transform structures and strategies for educating, particularly for those who are marginalized. We complement the mission and goals of the 21st Century California School Leadership Academy, 21 CSLA. Housed in the leadership programs of Berkeley School of Education, we acknowledge our presence on unceded Ohlone land. We explore innovative ideas and compelling work of educational leaders at the intersection of research, policy, and practice to realize individual social and environmental justice because our democracy depends on it. So let's just start out. Um, Can you introduce yourself to us?
1: Sure. I'm Jabari Mahiri. I'm a professor in the School of Education. I'm also the faculty director for our leadership programs, which includes our educational doctorate called LEAD, Leaders for Equity and Democracy, as well as our principal leadership program called PLI. I'm also the chair of the leadership board for the new project that we've been running for the first three years and now are going into the second year, second cohort, called 21CSLA, 21st Century California State Leadership Academy.
0: Amazing. Well, I'm so excited to be chatting with you here. I'll just introduce myself too. My name is Robin Ilton G, and I'm an assistant professor up at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. And yeah, I'm thrilled to be just learning more about this podcast that you're working on called Equity Leadership Now. So Jabari, can you tell me a little bit about what what should we expect from this podcast?
1: Well, we recognize that There are so many ways to provide information to people who are engaging in the difficult job of leading for equity. And at the School of Education and in our leadership programs, we decided that it would be great to put out a podcast that featured some of the most provocative, innovative, accomplished thinkers and scholars on the very complex and complicated issues of leading for equity. And so since we have access to a number of these people, and we will name some of them as, as you go or you'll see on our website, the list of people who are coming, I think that you know it will be a real benefit to the community, to the educational community, to the leadership community to have access to really interesting, modularized communications that they can use in their classes, that they can use in professional uh, learning communities, that they can use in communities of practice. That they can use in their coaching to facilitate them achieving their own leadership goals for equity.
0: Amazing. And when you say leadership, can you just give us like a a bit of context about what kind of leaders you might be bringing in?
1: That's it. We want to have a really expanded notion of leadership. So we're talking about leaders at all levels. 21 CSLA focuses on leaders at the district level, at the school site level, and teacher leaders. But we want to expand that. We're interested in leaders in higher education. We're interested in leaders who train leaders. We're interested in, of course, leaders who are at the district level. We already have confirmed some of the two, two of the most amazing district superintendents in the state of California. We have school site leaders who've done amazing things in terms of transformation in their schools. And we'll bring bring in a, a couple of those leaders forward too. Uh, thirdly, we have leaders who are teacher leaders. We I'm a, a the assistant. I'm, I'm the uh, faculty director of the uh, Bay Area Writing Project. So we have access to a number of teacher leaders all over the state who are doing amazing work in their in their own right too. Student leaders and community leaders. We really will be bringing forth the voices of some students and communities leaders who again are doing major work and sort of not putting a focus on leadership that's too narrow. We want to see leadership wherever it's happening. Parent leaders, I forgot to mention those too.
0: I know you've talked a bit about how the positionality of your guests that you have on this podcast is really important to you. Can you tell us a little bit about the connection between identity and leadership in your, from your perspective?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because we think that positionality is a key component of your own way of engaging in leadership that there's no rule for what the best approach to leadership, the best style of leadership is. And we certainly understand that leaders coming from different perspectives and backgrounds will have different approaches and strategies for how they engage in their leadership tasks. Of course, we wanna be aware that there needs to be as much diversity in the leadership as it can as there can possibly be. So we are consciously seeking uh, leaders who come from diverse positionalities, people who uh, don't necessarily uh, reflect the you know the demographics of leadership in the state of California in the uh, in the uh, United States itself. The idea of positionality also is that we want to ask every person that we bring on the podcast, two questions to begin. One is, how do you identify yourself? And secondly, how do you feel U.S. society identifies you? And one of the things we want to probe is that archaeology of the self. In my own case, if you were to look at me, you wouldn't necessarily know that my mother is a full-blown Cherokee because I look like an African-American man, and I am an African-American man, but I identify as an American of African descent.
0: Those two questions are so interesting. And then how do you feel like, so just to use those questions, how do you feel like U.S. society identifies you?
1: I think U.S. society identifies me as a black man. And uh, so that is interesting in the sense that black lives do matter. And I'm certainly, you know, uh, interested in promoting as much as we can through the educational system to achieve uh, equity and uh, equal representation and the uh, development of the the most positive outcomes for all students, but particularly with a focus on those who have been most marginalized. And African-American males are one of the positionalities that has been most marginalized in the educational system. But I think that we also want to be aware that there's ways in which a simple color-coded definition of who people are is really a way that the system of white supremacy is supported because it begins with a simple binary of white and black and then attempts to put other colorized categories in between. It's interesting that we can't use the terms for all of those colorized categories. We can say brown folks, we can say black folks, we can say white folks, but when we talk about Native Americans, when we talk about people from Asian countries, we're very reticent to use the color-coded categories that have been assigned to those, and I won't use them in, in, in this conversation either.
0: You just shared a little bit about your own identity and how you feel like society views you and through this through this paradigm. What are some key milestones in your own leadership journey since you are a leader in so many capacities now? Are there any stories or memories or moments that stick out to you as pivotal?
1: I like to think of myself now as an elder in the community. and. I could have retired. I just was talking to a colleague when we were at a conference earlier this week down in Los Angeles. And she said, this work of 21 CSLA has made me want to come out of retirement. And when I thought about it, I said, you know, this work of 21 CSLA has wanted, wanted me to not go into retirement because it's been so vital. It's been so engaging. And interestingly. It's one of the first times in my history, and I'm going to get to you know how I feel like my own milestones as a leader have been a part of uh, the journey to bring me to where I am now. But in every instance, when I was drafted into the Army right out of high school, spent 18 months in Vietnam. Before that, I went to officer's candidate school and became a second lieutenant. So I was second lieutenant you know, in Vietnam. But when I, I got out of the service, two things happened. One, I had the GI Bill, so that's what allowed me to go to college. But secondly, I had a sense of needing to atone for being so naive as an 18-year-old kid to allow myself to be drafted and to do a, 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 a service, a tour of duty uh, in a country that I really didn't need to be in and that I really didn't belong in. And it was a part of a larger uh, set of, uh, of issues going on the society at that time that I didn't want to be a part of, so I felt like I needed to be engaged in work that was supportive of different ways of being in the world as opposed to, and education was a key aspect of that. So let me just finish on on that point. So right after college, I went to college, believe it or not, in two and a half years, I finished my degree at the University of Illinois in two and a half years. And I immediately joined a community organization called the Institute of Positive Education. So I was already engaged in education with people like Carol Lee and Donnell Lee and others who were major figures and are still doing amazing work even today. We created a school called New Concept Development Center that all the, all three of my boys went to for their first three grades. So this whole notion of pre K is so important. If you You should have all of the basic skills for literacy by the time you get out of third grade. You should have your science skills, your math literacy skills, your reading and writing literacy skills. They should be all foundational so that after that, you're just building on that. And I think we did that in New Concept Development Center. I was the chair of the board for its first seven years. So that was one of my early leadership experiences. And that school, believe it or not, still exists today. Forty-five years later... There are still people, although it's got a new name, it's now the Mary Cloud Bethune uh, School, and it goes from uh, kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And they've also merged and become a part of the Chicago Public Schools. Came to, the, to Berkeley after I finished my doctorate. I had several job offers, you know, all Research One universities, but they were all in English departments. Berkeley was the only job offers that I had that was in the School of Education. I jumped on it, not because it was in California and not in Ohio or Pittsburgh, where I had other job offers at the University of Illinois, which were all cold climates like the one I come from. I jumped on it because it was the only offer that I had that was a school of education. And I had been teaching high school in Chicago for the last seven years as I was finishing up my doctorate degree, have a bunch of interesting stories there. We won't go there but being able to come to a school of education was so important <clears throat> and, uh, in terms of my own sense of continuing the work that I've been doing from the years of the Institute of Positive Education, but now in a formal institutional structure here at UC Berkeley. <clears throat> and then I became the leader, the director of our teacher education program. I became the director, you know, the faculty director of our leadership programs. And also as we moved into 21CSLA, Got involved in the writing of those grants and now the implementation of those grants. Song flew through the open window, sounding like heaven to me. Hoist up the banner, humanity. Hoist up the banner. Of love. Sounding like heaven to me.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really intrigued by this story about, about you joining the army. And I'm wondering if if one of the things you'll be looking for from your guests are moments in their leadership journey when they rethought something or had a moment where they had to re-examine or change their mind about something.
1: Certainly I will because it's those serendipitous moments <clears throat> that really define us. We have our plan, and life intervenes in the plan that we, that we have. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I think that as, a, as a, one example, I feel I became political while I was in Vietnam. I had time, and if for some reason the books were available being sent out to the troops. So I read Invisible Man. I read The Man Who Cried I Am. You know, I read all of these works, Richard Wright's Native Son, while I was in Vietnam. So I'm like, wait a minute, the reality that these people are bringing forward here that speaks to my own experiences as an African-American man are much different from the narrative that I'm beginning, that I'm supposed to trumpet as a officer in the United States Army. And so that became an interesting set of conflicts that made it very clear that when my time and tour of duty was up, I was out the door and back into the world, going to college and trying to contribute. So I think our guests will have some really similar exciting stories to tell us. Yeah,
0: definitely. Your personality as like a literature and literacy, um, you know, professor is also coming out. I'm wondering if there are other texts that you feel have been, you know, life-changing or transformative. You mentioned just a few or things that you always return to.
1: Well, there are so many, but I'll just mention a couple. One was called The Destruction of uh, Black Civilization by Chancellor Williams. When we were back in our Institute of Positive Education days, we would have community learning events called nation studies classes, and we would have them at a library or we had them at our organization, and we'd invite the community in, and we would wrestle with these really difficult topics we were kind of like black nationalists right so we were like really out there on the forefront we had alliances with the nation of islam we had alliances with uh, black panther party and things like that imamu baraka milana karinga you know the african liberation movement that was going on the anti-apartheid movement that was going on and, and community members who actually built the school by the way it was a community school also, were engaged in learning. We actually had one set of learnings that we didn't put together, but we also benefited from. And it was called a University. And, and every Saturday morning at the Center for Inner City Studies, which was in Chicago, <clears throat> people would just come out and from 9 to 12, they could take classes from the very professors who you would pay to take classes if you were in a master's program for free and Dr. Anderson Thompson, Dr. Bobby Wright, Dr. Harold Pates, Dr. Conrad Worrell, you know, they were all there to talk about, you know, their expertise, but to the community. And those are some of the most vibrant times. I've actually thought about trying to do something like that here at Berkeley. We have this amazing facility. What if we had a Saturday community here? What would that look like?
0: Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> I remember, like, there were some teach-outs during the Occupy protests when I was here at Berkeley, but other than other than that that sounds incredible. Great. Well, can you speak a little bit about the catchphrase for this podcast, educate like democracy depends on it? What does it mean to you and what do you hope to spark with your guests by 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 throwing this catchphrase out?
1: We're in a moment in the history of this country that I never thought would have happened and now that it has, it becomes absolutely clear that education as well as many other Institutions in society, so it can't all be linked to education. But institutions in society, economic institutions, the political institutions, the educational institutions, various kinds of technology and innovative institutions have to realize that democracy is under threat right now, that the country is divided, and that the things that we thought education would do. I'm coming from a literacy background, I'm coming from a rhetoric background, so we were always trying to pursue the truth, trying to understand what pieces of evidence, what kinds of arguments were most resilient to allow us to get at the truth of what was happening in our reality, understanding that there are multiple streams of reality going on all the time. And yet we can argue that there's still a fundamental set of truths, you know, that we hold to be (laughs) self-evident. And so if those truths are something that can be self-evident, then education has to be one of the routes that leads us to, that leads people to discovering those truths in their own life and then being able to see the connection between the truth that they experience and, and believe in being definitively connected to the truth of other people that are in the society too. And if we move away from the truth, if we say that it's okay to not base our understanding of reality on the evidence and the truth of things that are happening around us, that any narrative that someone creates, almost a 1984 Orwellian place of being in the world where it's just the reverse of the truth, that the the institutions that you have that are supposed to help us find the truth are actually the ones that— Provide obstacles to us getting to the truth, like our political processes and like voting and other kinds of things, then we are in trouble. And so I think that as educators, we have renewed excitement in the work that we do because literally our democracy depends on it. One other thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about books, I talked about the destruction of black civilization. There was another book by an author named Ayikwe Armand that we studied in our nation studies classes and it always stuck with me. He wrote a book called 2000 Seasons, which was the major work, but he also his second book was called The Healers. And this notion of the healers for me linked into what I thought I needed to do and be to fully atone and to contribute to a transformation of you know, individuals and society to the extent that I can contribute to that. So this notion of positioning myself as kind of a healer was something that I was, you know, always attempting to do. And of course, you never are completely, you know, good at that. You can always be better at that. But I would add to that a healer and a listener. I was into, we, we have a thing in, in, in the School of Education and our leadership programs where when new people come in, we ask them to, you know, go around and meet all of the other people and have little sidebar conversations, go to coffee, go to lunch. And so I was in, in, in a newer person's office and I was just getting ready to leave. And she said, you know, I felt like you really listened to me. And that made my day because particularly as a man, you know, I think I have to learn to listen. And so one of the things that we want to bring into our podcast is that ability to engage our guests, but to really listen to them and to listen deeply, to listen empathetically, to listen critically also, so that we can sort of push back and, and not so much push back on them, but to challenge the way that things are, being, are, are evolving so that it's a, a, a true dialogue. It's a true conversation. So I do have kind of a blues voice. Uh, You know, I've gotten older. As I said, you know, this work has uh, prevented me from wanting to even retire. I mean, when there's no distinction between the work that you are doing and what you would want to do when you retire, then I think that this is the best position that you could be in in your entire life. If I were to retire, I want to travel to interesting places. I want to be engaged with really smart and interesting people. I would want to continue to, you know, share my ideas. And I get to do all of this and still keep my salary. So... Why would I want to retire at this moment when we have this opportunity to do all of this good work? I actually interviewed Gil Scott Heron once when I was, because one of the other jobs I had at the Institute of Positive Education is I was a managing editor of our magazine called Black Books Bulletin. And this work will be chronicled eventually A a, a Myesha uh, win over at Davis is doing a retrospective on these independent school movements and the people who made those happen. And so she intensively interviewed me for maybe two and a half hours. It was like two interviews, two two hour interviews. Some of that's gonna come out and so some of this information and things that we did back in the day, you know, will come to the forefront. But this notion of being a young person coming out of school and getting a role as a managing editor for one of the few black journals in the 70s and 80s. There was Black Allegiant. There was Negro World. There was Ebony. There was Ebony Jr. But there were very few. There was Black Scholar. But there were very few mediums that the black thought could be, you know, uh, projected through. And in a way, I guess maybe this is still an extension of that. You know, I interviewed amazing guests. I got to interview two people who were Nobel Prize winners. One was Sole Solyinka, not Wole. Wole. What was Wole's last name? Okay. And the other one, we'll, we'll, we'll correct us on the tape. The other one, although this interview didn't get published, was with, with Toni Morrison. I got to sit in her office for 45 minutes before she got the Nobel Prize and just listen to her. And she really guided me. The whole notion of how she thought being an editor allowed her to make decisions about works that brought the true nature of things to the forefront. A guy had written a book about trains, and he didn't include the role of African-Americans in the whole train experience in the history of the United States. And she wouldn't allow him to then just put a chapter in the book on black Americans, like it was the caboose on the train. She forced him to rewrite the entire book to integrate the roles of African-Americans coming from the South to the North, going from East to West on trains, and for me, that's, that became another kind of thing that guided me, that we can have roles that help us to really bring those experiences of people who are marginalized and, un, and made invisible into the forefront, into the limelight, so that the whole world benefits by that. So when I interviewed uh, Gil Scott Cairn, one of the things that, you know, he I loved his music, but he talked about there's a hundred shades of the blues and this notion of we have 50 shades of gray but that even when we think about something like the blues, it might be like hundreds of shades of the blues. And so when we're bringing people's stories to the forefront, the centrality of the blues to American culture, the idea of struggle with the one hand, but the hope that 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 genre is also projecting. And at the same time saying there's no one blues, there could be, you know, three hundred and twenty five million shades of the blues in the United States because of three hundred and twenty five million people.
0: So you have a blues voice, but uh, I know you're also a hip-hop fanatic.
1: Well, I wouldn't say a hip-hop fanatic, but (laughs) we did have an opportunity when we were at the conference this this last past week for me to give a presentation that sort of thematized some of the things that were coming up. And I talked about my own teaching when I was a high school teacher in, 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 in Chicago and how One of the things, you know, because my first book was called African-American and Youth Culture in New Century Schools. And I was making that essential case that there's something central about African-American culture, about hip hop, about blues, about jazz, about the way we engage in sports and dance and music that we that embellishes the entire culture of the United States. And so my students at that time, these were ninth graders, they were like resisting wanting to read Chaucer and I was like, you know, and I had to teach Chaucer because it was a part of the canon. But what I also understood was that Chaucer was very much like what contemporary young people are doing now with hip-hop. In other words, if you look at the Canterbury Tales, if you look at these interesting characters, if you look at the Squire, if you look at the, the Knight, if you look at the Wife of Bath, if you look at the Miller, these are all sort of funky guys on a, on their way to uh, Canterbury. And how did they entertain themselves? They entertained themselves by telling these rich stories that had the very same structure that a lot of hip-hop has right now. You know, the Miller was a chap of 16 stones, a great big fellow, all brawn and bones. I could go on, but my point simply is that these young people began to see that there was a link between their culture, things that they enjoyed, and the things that were going on in the 1450s, right, 1400s. And so we had a reinvigoration of their engagement with, with, with these ancient texts. And at the same time, if we think about it, English was a vernacular language at that time. Latin was the, was, was the dominant language. And so when we talk about hip-hop being sort of vernacular and a, a language on the margins, it's clear that maybe, you know, in the next hundred years, everybody will be, you know, using the, the, the genre of hip-hop as a primary mode of expression. Our podcast team includes Jennifer Elliman, Robert Ilton-G, Bree Luna, Jabari Mahiri, Audra Puschalski, Mayra Reyes, Dara Tom,
0: and Ryan Whittle.